0: Planet Worker, a world in development. Human Agency and International Development Series Episode 20 Neoliberal Feminism and the New Colonialism in Development In this episode we explore the emergence of neoliberal feminism and the promotion of its global project, The Girl, through the narrative of The Girl Effect and its intersection with developmentalism and international NGOs using Plan International as an example. The rise of the girl in development discourse and policy over the last eight years has been remarkable, both in its prominence and in its political drivers. The roots of this initiative go further back. Though to the World Bank's highlighting of girls' education as an economically sound investment in future reductions in the birth rate. Significantly, the corporate sector has been particularly prominent in advocating the girl agenda. The Knight Foundation led the way in focusing on adolescent girls in the global south as the solution to the problem of development from 2004. The Knight Foundation established partnerships with a range of powerful institutions, including the Population Council, the International Centre for Research on Women, the World Bank and DFID. From this powerful coalition, Knight's notion of the girl effect has expanded and been adopted and promoted by a wide range of international development institutions. In 2007, UNICEF, UNIFEM and WHO established a UN Interagency Task Force on Adolescent Girls. In 2008, the World Bank founded its Adolescent Girl Initiative, aimed at improving girls' and young women's economic opportunities. And in 2010, the UK government announced that it would focus its development aid on girls and women. This has been followed by campaigns such as the UN's Girl Up and later Plan Internationals Because I Am A Girl, as well as corporate social responsibility projects by Nokia, Chevro, Shell Oil, Exxon, Credit Suisse, Walmart, Intel and Goldman Sachs. Plan 2 has drawn heavily on the analysis generated by this initiative and includes these in many of its publications and communication materials. Internally, it serves as an important rationale for its strategic decisions and program orientation. For example, selections from the Girls' Count agenda are included in its program guide. An example of this is the proposition that Girls spend anywhere between 33 and 85% more time on unpaid care work than their brothers, and that this figure carries legacies for girls far into their adult years. The prominence of the girl affecting development discourse illustrates an intensification of neoliberalism in development, fused with neocolonialist constructs of women and girls in the South. In seeking to establish a global discursive framework, this has had to address the construct of girls in both the North and South, It is an assemblage of transnational policy discourses, novel corporate investment priorities, biopolitical interventions, branding and marketing campaigns, charitable events designed to produce a social movement for change, and designer goods that invite young women in the North or West to express pride in being a girl. In doing so, the girl effect modulates its messaging to bind multiple interpolations of context and meaning across a global landscape. Central to the girl effect is the idealisation of the neoliberal subject along three central features, educationally successful, economically independent, and in control of their sexuality and reproductive capacities. These correspond to the portrayal of middle class girls from the North as exerting their agency and having been empowered. Agency, in this sense, reflects the capacity to make choices closely linked to education, Accordingly, education and entrepreneurship are essential elements of the girl effect economic rationale as a smart investment strategy to overcome their barriers. Girls' education is instrumentalized as smart economics and allied with the promotion of women focused microcredit. The girl effect entrenches the position of women as productive, compliant, and hardworking. It reproduces a subject whose capacity for labor and entrepreneurship is both racialized and gendered. This is embodied in pseudo-economic and unverifiable statements such as Girls will invest 90% of her future income back to her community, compared to 35% for a boy. As Michelle Murphy has argued, the figure of the racialized third world girl, typically represented as South Asian or African, often Muslim, has become the iconic vessel of human capital, presented singularly as heterosexual, Her rates of return are dependent on her forecasted compliance with expectations to serve her family, her ability to be thoroughly girled. Kalpana Wilson has noted that the girl effect consistently portrays girls at risk from cultural practices such as early marriage and predatory men, while minimising the structural causes of poverty and neglecting questions on the gender division of labour as it relates to girls' lives in adolescence itself. In illustrative media of smart economics, hypothetical girls in rural communities are presented as having to carry the burden of household chores and family caring responsibilities at the expense of her own advancement and education. This situation is apparently resolved by the provision of appropriate technology, a fuel-efficient stove or rollable water container, for example which allows us to see the girl capable of both cooking and study, without a fundamental shift in gendered relations of household reproduction. Similarly, Catherine Rottenberg argues that the advent of the adolescent girl as the agent of development marks the transition from liberal to neoliberal feminism in development, where responsibility shifts to the girl following investment in her human capital. Liberal feminist critiques... Highlighting gender discrimination as barriers to the effective functioning of markets were superimposed with a focus on the potentiality of pre-reproductive, pre laboring years. This trope is thoroughly neoliberal in that education is presented as the means to produce an idealised neoliberal subject who can negotiate unfitted and unregulated markets with ease, while simultaneously assuming full responsibility for social reproduction. The girl effect not only interpolates girls from the South in specific ways, but those from the North as well. The latter are constructed as the new pre-adult agents of change, or alternatively the driving agents of development, against whom the South girl is starkly contrasted. This portrayal establishes the North as gender liberated and the ideal for a transformed South. Girls in the North are educated, connected, and free to choose, empowered. In contrast, Anita Harris suggests young men are often presented in media discourses that reference masculinity as being in crisis, highlighting girls as being the new agents of change, and depicted as can do girls. Girls are also the target for intense communication and marketing campaigns by like capital, which themselves reconstruct girls' agency as inextricably linked to financial, and commodity choices. Agency is equated with freedom of choice to generate and consume. Although the girl effect is a relatively recent developmentalist motif, its constructions of agency reinforce racialized and colonial foundations in its portrayal of the North, which has the capacity for collective transformation of both its own society. According to idealized neoliberal capitalism, and the South to modernize, civilize, instill entrepreneurism, and thereby to risk it according to the same ideology. The contracting focus of the emergent neoliberal feminism on the individual is in stark contrast with the second wave of feminism and its critique of systemic inequality and discrimination, and its concentration on the responsibility of the female subject marks a withdrawal from an external, transformative critique of structure. At its core is the construction of individual identity, the neoliberal feminist subject, and a concomitant preoccupation with individual happiness and self-growth. By shifting the ideological terrain from the structural to the individual, the discourse restricts the transformative intent to the micro-site of individual advancement, and diminishes the importance of the impact of racialization, and the legacy of colonialism in the structure of inequality and domination. Structure has effectively been rendered a historical, and racially neutral. Consequently, a singular focus on the individual domain presents difficulties in regard to consideration of intersectionality and the formulation of strategies that order and connect these in a form of priority. Neoliberal feminism locates itself inextricably within developmentalism, mutually reinforcing a mode of governance that seeks to colonize more domains. One of the discursive mechanisms of this domination is to reconstruct culture and the identity of the subject within it. But, as Nancy Fraser notes, singular interventions in cultural frames can present political difficulties when gender cuts across other axes of subordination. For example, claims for minority cultural recognition. Another consequence of neoliberalism in development is the repositioning of macro, or meta-injustices into bounded polities where transnational injustices are recast as national or sub-national matters. At the same time, this form of feminism is removed from the specificity of struggles for equality or justice. Cut off from collective struggles or historical understandings and tied to post-feminist, neoliberal and entrepreneurial ideas. Poverty and its causal factors thus fade from the forefront of a global justice discourse to a localised setting where the individual is separated from the potential for globally provided transformational support in the form of solidarity, or restorative justice. For Fraser, emergent feminism's neoliberal turn is demonstrated by three significant shifts in its critique. Firstly, the critique of social democratic economism has converged with neoliberalism's interest in diverting political and economic struggles into culturalist channels. In addition, traditional feminist critiques of unpaid family wage increasingly serve today to legitimate a new mode of capital accumulation that is heavily dependent on women's wage labor. And finally, the feminist critique of welfare state paternalism has converged unwittingly with neoliberalism's critique of the nanny state and is allied with development's embrace of microcredit. And NGOS. In the South, Berle effect discourse has shifted the site of oppression to localized social structure, primarily at the level of the family, and redefined concepts of agency and empowerment in terms of resistance to the oppressive nature of this structure as an obstacle to individual potentiality, framed generally as a struggle against the imposition of culture and tradition. Agency in this sense becomes limited to the strategy of resistance to the family and the risk of early marriage and its generational consequences. The preoccupation with cultural structure reinforces colonialist perspectives on the tracks of history and tradition and homogenizes the experiences and identities of women and girls in the South. In this discourse, agency is equated with resistance and the development interventions required to empower girls to challenge their social setting, utilising their voice as an expression of their agency. Indeed, Tyers-Besser argues that girls' and women's voices become the proof of agency and the symbol of their empowerment, and ability to make choices and to resist. Indeed, to speak out against the patriarchy. This emphasis on voice plays an important role in neoliberal feminism's transference of agency to the individual, whose stories and perspectives are extracted from both the specificity of local and global structural inequality. The focus on voice agency has decisively shifted attention away from both material structures of power and gendered ideologies, towards representations of voice and individual testimony. A conflation of voice with stories by women and girls in the South play a crucial role to validate the interests of the North. On the one hand, individualised stories of oppression validate both the North's interest to prove universality and cross-cultural applicability, and NGO selection of projects and campaigns. On the other, the success stories of girls are then used to reaffirm existing interventions and claims that certain strategies, such as empowering girls, are the most effective, creating a chain of self-fulfilling evidence. Both forms of stories sustain simplistic constructs and enable neoliberal feminism to avert acknowledging and engaging with cultural differences in their multiplicity and complexity. By constructing families as sites of conflict and urging girls to speak out and resist, Plan and other NGOs place the burden of action on the girl and place her at risk. Not only does this presentation ignore social and cultural complexities in the exercise of choice by girls and their families, it imposes a strategy that may not be preferred by girls. Given the sensitivities of emotional relationships and support within the family, Without providing considerable support to deal with the consequences of this strategy of resistance, organisations like Plan are demanding singular forms of action while imposing substantial risk on girls themselves. Apart from voice, neoliberal feminism converges with developmentalist ideology in its focus on entrepreneurship as a manifestation of agency. Along with stories of success, PLAN and other agencies often present a range of images of women engaged in productive activity, with the implicit message that they are already acting to change their circumstance and are worthy of investment. Girls are often presented in animated and optimistic ways, while older women are portrayed as battling away in their lived realities. This reinforces the importance of timely intervention and the value of individual entrepreneurial action as the manifestation of agency. Statistics are also used to correlate girlness with either extremes of poverty and objection, or compliant and community-beneficial forms of waged and unwaged labour, and life chances and the modest activities that constitute micro-entrepreneurship are thoroughly girled. As Murphy notes, in this way the girl is imbued with the feminist promise of agency, translated into the promise of value-added capital. This is where the actualization of the agency of a gendered subject, the girl, is common to both development ideology and neoliberal feminism. In this discursive convergence, young women are thus doubly constructed as ideal, flexible subjects. They are imagined as benefiting from feminist achievements and ideology, as well as from new conditions that favor their success by allowing them to put these into practice. Visual abstractions of women and girls and their potential agency is a central theme in plans donor communications and serve to impose stereotypical representations of the forms of agency and how these are exhibited. In a context of marketing communications, agency is therefore contingent upon the northern consumer's own agentic authority, expressed as endorsement or financial contributions. Agency can then be conferred by the consumer through plan to these women and implicitly reaffirming the civilizing mission. The corresponding effect of an abundance of investment into and the hypervaluation of the anticipatory potential of the girl is a set of implicit devaluations, including the future children born of the adults who girls will someday become, of the adults who uncapitalized girls will grow up to be, and boys who offer lower rates of return. More particularly, in contrast to the constructive girl, young men are increasingly racialized and reconstructed as a risk to order by virtue of their unruliness and ungovernability. In this way, a focus on girls provides alternate justification for control of young men in global and national security frames. The turn to the girl in development introduces a conceptual tension with development's long standing concern with the position of women in the developing world. Evidenced, for example, through the discursive phases of women in development, women in development, and gender and development, while not completely displacing the concern with gender and development. In many respects, the emergence of the girl in global development discourse repackages historical narratives concerned with saving women in the South and shares key features. Primary amongst these is the homogenization of third-world women, paternalistic attitudes and notions of southern women as oppressed by an essentialized culture. Homogeneity remains a key feature of representations of the girl. The girl effect also generates tensions between women and girls as a focus of development in two important ways. The first is the consideration of the girl as a better investment given their heightened potential as economic actors to deliver a greater return. Girl effect discourse presents this as an early opportunity and delay risk. In that the girl may get older and be more susceptible to early marriage and the resultant poverty trap, with the logic that an early investment will generate more potential for return. Somewhat paradoxically, girls outdo older women by being both at greater risk and representing superior productive potential girls are also viewed as more vulnerable and hence more deserving of protection. Secondly, by constructing the girl as at risk of the deleterious effects of culture and her social structures, women are presented as partly responsible for this failure. They are simultaneously part of the social unit the family, that oppresses the girl and frustrates her potentiality, and, ironically, are now themselves the symbol of failed empowerment. In doing so, the girl effect introduces an age dichotomy between young women, girls, and older women, mothers, that neglects the defining features of their social structure that determine shared experience status and vulnerability including poverty ethnicity and sexuality while seemingly creating a global sisterhood of girls the discourse has created an intra-gender cleavage that could undermine global efforts to address gender inequality by improving the position of all women at the same time the girl effect narrative does demonstrate a shift from more traditional racialized depictions of third world women as passive victims of their circumstances and enhance an interest in agency and development. What is at issue, as Wilson argues, is the way in which agency becomes linked to a specific modality of neoliberal entrepreneurialism. In developmentalist discourse, girl, or indeed women empowerment, is concerned with the capacity to choose, and is framed within liberal assumptions of freedom, individual authenticity and self-realization. A portrayal of girls and women from the South is often in the form of a binary, being at the same time at risk victims that need to be rescued and heroines full of capacity. In this framing, girls not only have the potential to be agentic, but the responsibility to do so through their choices. Women, particularly from the South, are constructed within a binary of confident, capable and agentic at one hand and at risk, oppressed and in need of being saved at the other. In this discourse, the empowerment of girls and women is equated with an individualist liberal interpretation of agency, where options are generated with the assistance of external intervention, and realised through individual agency, being the individual's life decisions. Empowerment is achieved in this context by the good choices of the individual – while failure is the result of their bad decisions. One such arena where this becomes manifest is with the issue of early marriage, which is a core campaign theme in girl-focused organisations like PLAN. The decision-making capacity of girls is replete in PLAN's discourse, providing a dual rationale as a problem to address. In PLAN's words, girls are denied the right to decide, and as an objective in itself. Plan has a vision that all girls will have the right to decide their futures by 2030. In this way, Plan hopes to construct, or actualize the neoliberal ideal girl as independent and agentic. As the focus of discourse shifts to the individualistic construct of the girl, and her journey to modernity, there remains a need to challenge and transform the social structure that frustrates this objective. Neoliberal feminist discourse provides the substance for the presentation of girls as the victims of their family and local culture. This discourse has effectively transitioned from a consideration of poverty and its effects to a view of the local and the family as coercive and oppressive in a site of struggle. A girl's agency, therefore, can only be manifested by her resistance to and freedom from her family and culture. Plan's employment of this narrative presents a risk of constructing families in the South as places of conflict and confrontation. This redirection neatly shifts blame for early marriage from global inequality and structural poverty, which is superficially acknowledged in Plan's discourse as a dominant factor in early marriage, to families and local cultural political groups and actors. By framing these as the key barrier and problem to be addressed, Organisations like planned shift from solutions that address the causes and conditions of poverty to intervening in and transforming social relations that threaten and disempower girls. This is a familiar neocolonial trope where barriers to development, in this case personified by girls' empowerment, are constituted by backward or harmful cultural beliefs and practices that do not view girls as economic actor or deserving of investment. As with the overall girl effect, the evidence supporting the causality between girls' empowerment and a reduction in child marriage is inconsistent at best. However, evidence is not necessary for generating the intuitive power of the girl discourse and its political intent. In this discourse, as with developmentalism more broadly, the fundamental objective is to reframe the discursive totality through which the world is perceived and experienced, in order to reconstruct the subjects that inhabit it. In seeking to reconstruct the girl in the South, the girl effect needs to create and sustain the notion of feminine adolescence in the South. Having established the concept of girlhood in the North as a transition within childhood and being a time to learn, prior to and free from marriage and childbearing, it now needs to transfer this cultural category to southern contexts. Accordingly, the girl effect discourse relies more heavily on rhetorical devices that shift between girls who have the potential for empowerment to transform their lives and their social order. The so-called can do girls, and those whose freedom is constrained by their social order, or at-risk girls. This oscillation constitutes the discursive field for talking about all girls, regardless of geographic or cultural location and provides an opportunity for a range of media outputs. The interlinking of intensifying women's labour and controlling women's fertility set a powerful focus on the figure of the adolescent girl as the vehicle for investment in future growth and the preeminent neoliberal subject of development. The urgency of this investment is a feature of the discourse. As Murphy notes, if she is not invested in, another more apocalyptic result is forecasted in which the clock is ticking. By 12, she will be married. By 14, pregnant. After which she may have to sell her body and contract HIV, the girl is a ticking bomb of risk. Effectively, girls in the South face two potential lives – either unproductive or productive, and the realisation of the latter is the key to development success. As a neoliberal project, the girl effect is notable for the way in which it has created the alliance between a variety of development actors, represented by NGOs, charities, governmental and multilateral agencies, and global corporate actors. This serves to establish it as a dominant feature of global development discourse, and the opportunity to engage the empowered girl as a consumer. Like Nike, global corporations are orienting their strategies for greater penetration of this emerging consumer market. Somewhat ironically, Plan presents investments in girls and its discourse as good business. Even that plan have motivated for its strategic pivot to focus on girls as a way to generate and sustain new forms of revenue to sustain itself in the coming years. Good business for development is good business for Plan. Global corporates bring another dimension in that they are attuned to the use of media to manipulate and construct meaning. Contemporary media forms are a crucial enabler in the replication and imposition of the girl effect. In that the idealised girl subject is immersed in communication technologies that provide continuous reinforcement of individualistic signifiers of empowerment, economic independence, consumption and entrepreneurship. The girl effect discourse has dispensed with concerns with the structural, and historical specificity of poverty, and supplanted this with the idealization of potentiality. Empowerment and freedom can be achieved through individual effort. In this neoliberal framing, the debilitating effects of structural poverty can be analytically neglected, while poverty itself can become a generator of entrepreneurial potential, and if successful, empowerment. As previously noted, individual success stories serve as neoliberal tropes in the girl effect discourse, confirming the potentiality of entrepreneurialism as the answer to poverty. In addition, they portray this form of neoliberal capitalism as a benign and benevolent force, especially in the hands of women. This aligns well with the preoccupation of neoliberal feminism with individual economic advancement of women in the North, which themselves are used as inspirational symbols of success for women in the South within a narrative of solidarity and empowerment. In this context, it is also important to recognise the array of neoliberal development interventions that seek to appropriate the feminist ideas into its own dominant discursive frame. For example, Kate Bedford has described how an increasing focus on masculinities has resulted in greater emphasis by many institutions to promote greater involvement of men in household work as a way to facilitate increased economic activity and entry into labour markets by women. This is occurring in the context of shifts away from state and corporate responsibility for social reproduction and promotion of the heterosexual nuclear household as the ideal locus for survival of poor people. At its essence, the girl effect has positioned neoliberalism and neoliberal feminism as the liberating force for poor women of the South and the path through which patriarchy can be defeated. Kalpana Wilson argues the experiences of the political economy of disposability, of racialized policies, discourses and practices informed by gender equality as smart economics and the girl effect, and of neo-Malthusian population control policies, can only be understood through approaches which problematize the notion of women as a homogeneous category. Although the ideas of intersectionality are an attempt to recognize difference and the importance of location, by itself this does not counter the appropriation of notions of gender equality in neoliberal discourse. Development discourses on gender often reduce intersectionality to a measure of cumulative disadvantage, promoted by institutions such as the World Bank and advocated as a method by a number of commentators. Gendered analysis and intersectionality thereby becomes appropriated as instrumentalist to developmentalist discourse. As Mohanty argues, a focus on specificities must be combined with an acknowledgement of the racialized and gendered effect of global capitalism. Accordingly, Mohanty calls for a race and gender conscious historical materialism which creates a foundation for solidarity and connect struggles across locations while simultaneously acknowledging inequalities of power and privilege. This would enable a reclaiming of gender from the neoliberal development project. The neoliberal feminist turning plan was accompanied by an ideological hardening, driven and promoted by elites within the governance and senior staffing of plan officers. The plan CEO, appointed and supported by influential individuals in the governing body, led this ideological reshuffling and a consolidation of managerial control in the form of a managerial corps consisting largely of elite women in the powerful plan fundraising offices. From her appointment, the CEO was clear on her objective to turn the organisation into a feminist one, focused on the rights and needs of girls, even if this was to be at the expense of plan's purported focus on vulnerability. During her tenure, this intervention has shaped itself as feminist leadership. Effectively, the appropriation and extension of established managerial practices and approaches while presenting these as drawing upon feminist principles. The form of feminism promoted by this managerial clique was based on a particular kind of feminist subject espoused by neoliberalism. Drawing on liberal terms such as equality, opportunity and free choice, this form of feminism forges a feminist subject who is not only individualised but entrepreneurial in the sense that she is oriented towards optimising her resources through incessant calculation, personal initiative and innovation. Indeed, creative individual solutions are presented as feminist and progressive, while calibrating a felicitous work. Family balance becomes her main task. Inequality between men and women is thus paradoxically acknowledged only to be disavowed and the question of social justice is recast in personal, individualised terms. The creation of the new feminist subject was not restricted to plans target beneficiaries, women in the South, but also to its own leadership. The perspectives of the leading women in the global leadership was distinctly neoliberal feminist, and pursued the creation of the neoliberal feminist subject across the organization's leadership characterized by being distinctly aware of inequalities between men and women while disavowing the social, cultural and economic forces producing this inequality. By promoting a perception of strong, feminist leaders, they also emphasize the acceptance of full responsibility of women for their own well-being and self-care, which is increasingly predicated on crafting a series of management techniques including work, family balance, self-awareness and vulnerability and support of peer groups. By doing so, they have mobilised a cadre of neoliberal feminist subjects to convert gender inequality from a structural problem into an individual issue. The emergence of an active feminist leadership coddering plan is reflective of the interventionism of the neoliberal feminist resurgence, where increasing numbers of femocrats enter the policy apparatus of the United Nations, multilateral agencies, and international development donors and NGOs. These powerful women act as the driver for the integration of global gender justice with neoliberalism's global governance framework. It is therefore unsurprising that many of Plan's recruited leadership are drawn from this cohort. The drive for leadership equality, illustrated as more women in leadership positions, assumes that having more women in these positions will automatically ensure fairer treatment for all women. Because shared experience leads to empathy, not only does this affect a tiny number of women who are invariably already privileged, but the whole agenda operates to inculcate the norms of the market and of individualism and competition, which divide, rather than unify, even these privileged women. More disconcertingly, the personal well-being of these women of privilege is starkly at odds with the overwhelming majority of plans purported target poor and working-class women across the world. Neoliberalist feminist frames also undermine the enormous class, race and colonial divisions in plans global context. While expressing gender solidarity, neoliberal feminism individualizes responsibility for liberation from gender disadvantage and generates an isolated feminist consciousness where the message is for women and girls to rouse themselves to act upon their reality and free themselves from it. This turn inward helps to produce an individuated feminist agent who, alone, is accountable for garnering her own revolutionary energy, and transfers the site of activity from the collective public arena to each individual's psyche. It also conceptualises change as an internal, solipsistic and effective matter. In this way, the potential for collective, mobilised action is reduced to the domain of the individual, By building feminist solidarity with other women purely on sex or gender identity. Privileged women leaders in NGOs risk excluding women who ascribe different group identities more relevant to their struggles, including race, religion, class or sexuality. Exclusion resulting from these factors has been increasingly evidenced in a growing body of research that shows marginalisation and division may be entrenched by removing these factors from the foundation of solidarity. Despite this evidence, there remains persistent mythologizing of the capacity of women to act for social justice and collective values, and a notion of solidarity amongst women that is underpinned by assumptions of women's inherent cooperativeness with each other. Apart from this essentialism providing legitimation for NGO women leaders to advance their own positions under the banner of feminism. The presentation of solidarity serves a useful device for both sourcing and directing funding for the purpose of advancing women in general. In plan, the prevalence of the neoliberal narrative has been vigorously promoted through a variety of management strategies, largely persuasive in nature, but also accompanied by more strident and coercive means. Longer serving management and staff are routinely exhorted to change or leave. And there are instances of more direct coercive action to ensure compliance. In 2017, for example, the entire cohort of plans country directors attended a one-week management retreat at which they were assessed as to their level of alignment with the refocused strategy and implicitly with the new feminist principles framing the organisation and its practice. Corrective action also extended into the organisational internal social media platform where a senior male manager was reported through Plan's whistleblowing procedure and subsequently disciplined for bullying. He had debated the merits of feminism with a female colleague on the Internal Plan's social media platform. Another feature of the drive for institutional convergence was the appropriation and dissemination of management approaches and concepts as feminist leadership, which was to determine both management and subordinate behaviour. The term feminist leadership became a phrase used to describe the expectation from the leadership cadre that staff senior leaders, and those to be led by them, would be required to adhere to a set of behaviours deemed to be feminist. These behaviours were loosely outlined by plan as being about the sharing of power and using leadership and management approaches that are based on feminist values. It is motivated by fairness, equity and social justice. A Planned Country director stated this as, When we practice feminist leadership, we want to bring those who don't have a voice to the table. Planned CEO expressed it similarly as being about embedding equality, inclusion, fairness and justice in every action I take as a leader. Using my power, my authority, to ensure that that happens in the organisation. These values mirror the idealism of development and in their application of its paradox. In practice, they reinforce the power domain of the individual feminist NGO leader, who will give content to, add and define, the values of equality, equity, fairness, justice and inclusion, and they will determine to whom these are to be conferred. Recent application of these values have demonstrated their utility for terminating the contracts of staff and field offices of PLAN under the guise of misalignment to PLAN's new strategy and values, which embody neoliberal development ideology and feminism. Most of these staff are localised nationals, including community development practitioners, who have little recourse to resist nor opportunity to have their views heard by people exercising power within PLAN. In this context, power is retained by those who have successfully developed themselves and is exercised over those who have failed. By contrast, North-based professional staff are afforded the benefits of a more protective regulatory environment and can access people and positions of power to negotiate their positions or dissent. The imposition and exercise of neoliberal feminist authority in the strategy and institutional structure of PLAN asserts a distinctly neo colonial power and equality on both PLAN staff and its purported beneficiaries in the South. In this way, neoliberal feminism has become a crucial means to entrench neoliberal development discourse. Planet! All planet! Free planet! Free planet! All planet! planet Worker, a world in development. All-